Daniel Pipes. Whose dad, by the way, was on Team B. And Daniel Pipes is the head. Of, was the, at the time was the head of the Middle East. He was at the. T- he's still the head of the. Middle Richard East. Pipes was his dad, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I want to make sure I got that right. Richard Richard Lang Pipes. <laughs> That's why he got the job. Yeah. They were like, I don't agree with his methods, but he his can pipe, fucking his lay pipe, pipe game pipe is five star. <laughs> star. Welcome to Blowback. I'm Noah Colwin. I'm Brendan James. Um, today's episode is about the media. Uh, we've titled it Dead Links. Uh, speaking of links, if you feel like getting access to all 10 episodes of Blowback with bonus episodes, this is the last time we're going to put the call out. Sign up for Stitcher Premium with the link, stitcherpremium.com, enter promo code BLOWBACK for one month of free, ad-free, premium listening. All right, that's enough of that. What do we got today? So for the Iraq war to have gone down the way it did, a lot of things in a very specific order and specific timing needed to happen. The Bush administration needed to raise suspicion that Osama bin Laden was in cahoots with Saddam Hussein. Uh, The Bush administration also had to convince the world that Saddam Hussein had WMDs and he planned to use them. The Bush people needed to get Congress on board, and Colin Powell had to go to the U.N. to at least pretend that the U.S. cared what other countries thought. And to sell all that, the White House needed some help from the media. And boy, did they get it. For today's episode, we're actually going to chop it up into a couple different parts. For the first bit, uh, Brendan and I are going to be walking you through some of the reporting that was used to support the case for invading Iraq. And then in the next part, we're going to bring in special guest Will Meneker. Hello. Or if he so chooses, can contribute throughout the episode. If I so choose, I can contribute to the war in Iraq <laughs> and, and selling it to the American people. And once we're done selling the war in Iraq, we're going to uh, discuss a little bit you know, more of the punditry and a lot of what Americans might have been seeing on TV or in newspaper or editorial headlines, op-ed headlines from blogs. that time. The blogs. Will and I have a special soft spot for the blogs because it was the emergence of that form. In the, it, I mean, it, you couldn't have matched up a better form to content. This will be good because, you know, uh, much of my current personality disorder is, is based on being deranged by uh, watching the media uh, in the run-up to the Iraq war and reading some of the people who were in favor of it. But it's been such a long time that I feel... All those tumors in my body all had names, but I've forgotten a lot of them, even though I know they're still there killing me every single day. We've already discussed how a lot of the first public links between 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq, uh, how a lot of those were drawn up pretty soon after the towers came down. And so after months of talk about how Saddam was looking to develop... uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction and and how Saddam was a character that we needed to start looking more closely at. Dick Cheney, speaking on Meet the Press in December 2001, made this crazy claim that a 9-11 hijacker had met with an Iraqi intelligence official in Prague. It's been pretty well confirmed that he did go to Prague and he did meet with um, a senior official of the Iraqi intelligence service in Czechoslovakia last April, several months before the attack. On day one, if you remember, James Woolsey, the former CIA chief... Uh, had gone on TV and immediately said, 
like before the Bush administration even got to it, said, I think Saddam is the real mastermind behind 9-11. So that was September 12th, 2001. James Woolsey wasn't the only one who had those kinds of ideas. In fact, there was one uh, fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a woman named Lori Milroy, who had a lot of those same ideas. Yeah. And actually, Lori Milroy co-wrote a book in, 19, in 1990 mm-hmm. about Saddam and the Cold War. Yeah. And her co-author on that book was a certain New York Times reporter named Judith Miller. Now, you, you describe yourself once described smart, fearless, relentless, to now, to pushy, would do anything for a scoop, warmonger who helped sell and carry out the war. You said you laughed and you cried. Right, well, I I've been called worse. I want to know when you laughed and you cried. <laughs> I've been called worse. Miller was a well-known person at the time. She'd been the deputy bureau chief of the Washington Bureau uh, year in the late 80s, like you know, years before anything to do with 9-11 or the Iraq War. But over the course of the 90s and into the early 2000s, she became very well known for reporting on Al-Qaeda and, you know, the, the, the emerging fight against global terror. Mm. In fact, her specialty and the thing for which she became particularly well known was reporting about chemical and biological weapons and the ways in which terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda supposedly wanted to acquire those weapons and use them against the U.S. And after 9-11 had happened... Miller's expertise and her deep sourcing in D.C. and among neoconservatives especially was very quickly uh, given the fast track at the Times. The New York Times editor at that time was a guy named Howell Raines, who is known for being perhaps the worst editor in the modern history of the New York Times. He was responsible for the Jason Blair fabulism scandal. Uh, Reigns was supposedly responsible for this kind of no-holds-barred culture, and when 9-11 happened, he supposedly told Miller, go win us a Pulitzer. Okay. Uh, actually, a month after 9-11 happened, there was this whole network of anthrax attacks that went to media uh, and government uh, organizations, and a bunch of these were hoaxes, some were real. Initially, the suspicion was, of course, that this was tied to Al-Qaeda and global mm-hmm. terrorists. That was disproven. Uh, I remember like, the insane thing about the anthrax attacks is, you're right, they, ha- they happened like weeks after 9-11 did literally and i remember like you know being like watching the news or like being glued to the tv every day because of that. like the people forget like the anthrax attacks freaked people out like as much if not more than 9-11 one of the three congressional offices where anthrax has shown up is that of hoosier mike pence pence's family and staff were tested for exposure today but he had a stern message for those responsible to the people who did this our message to you is simply this you have failed again Because, like, 9-11 was, like, you know, yeah, ground zero. Lower Manhattan was very, like, you know, isolated into, like, you know, the most major part of America. But people, you know, didn't feel touched by it in the same way. Whereas now everyone was thinking, like, every letter that they touched, they were going to breathe in a fucking lungful of anthrax. Well, actually... (laughs) And and the other scary thing is uh, nobody... It it was never a resolve. Yes. Nobody has any idea who sent those anthrax letters. We talked about that in in an earlier episode. And I believe once the anthrax itself, and the the ones that were deadly, that ended up killing a few, I think, postal workers for the most part. Yeah. Didn't Dan Rather get some There's a great... This is jumping ahead into my half of it, but this is as good a time as I need to bring it up. There's a post from Andrew Sullivan on October 11th, 2001, right around the anthrax time. I worked as Andrew's intern a long time ago. I got to get that out of the way. And this is a paragraph. Are you on speaking terms with Andrew? Not really. Uh, there. This is a paragraph in a um, 
post that is hysterical the whole way through, but my favorite part of it. The key thing to look for is whether there is any Iraqi connection to the Florida anthrax outbreak. If there is, then this war will be expanded, whatever Colin Powell wants. I had my own biochemical jitter today. I saw two separate pigeons flailing in distress on the sidewalk, one block apart. A man walking nearby saw me notice and said he had contacted the public health department. Almost certainly nothing, but you don't realize how unconsciously you're looking out for things until you see them in front of you. So, Andrew, it, like if like the the general spirit of the nation at that time was, yeah, as you yeah. said, every, around every corner was a flailing pigeon <laughs> due to anthrax. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to be clear, though, uh, Judith Miller was never sent anthrax. No. <sighs> Also, uh, we, we cannot go forward without noting that anthrax was one of the things we definitely sold Saddam Hussein in the 80s. So within the world of the New York Times, and, and quickly with the media at this moment, Judith Miller became an incredibly visible face. She was on TV all the time, and her reputation was that she was an incredibly dogged and talented reporter who had absolutely no people skills and who, given set loose by Howell Reigns to go win the paper a Pulitzer, had sort of started fucking things up. Beginning in December 2001, when Cheney goes on Meet the Press and his Bush officials begin publicly connecting the 9-11 hijackers to Saddam Hussein in Iraq, a number of Judith Miller bylines begin appearing on a bunch of blockbuster stories in the New York Times. In December 20th, 2001, she writes a story about Iraqi who tells of renovations at sites for chemical weapons and nuclear arms. In February 3rd, 2002... She describes a bunch of Kuwaitis who come to the U.S. lobbying for action on Iraq, that they need change. These are people aided and supported by a number of well-known neoconservative pundits, like the Professor Fuad Ajami, who would later become key cogs in the Bush machine pushing war. In March 2002, a nation challenged leadership. White House wants Chief of Chemical Arms Group to resign. Basically, what happened was that the head of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the international group that was about a fifth funded by the U.S. that monitored chemical weapons, was told that they needed to not let Saddam let inspectors in. And that, in fact, they needed to get with the program and to support the U.S.'s bullying of the increasing calls for Saddam to just, you know, like, like step down or whatever. Um, actually, what happened, uh, Judith Miller talks about how this guy was, was, was being too soft on Saddam and that it wasn't clear that... He really understood the threat. Um, and what happened behind the scenes, as reported by Mehdi Hassan last year, was that this official, the Brazilian diplomat Jose Bustani, who headed the OPCW, uh, was threatened directly by John Bolton. He was threatened by Bolton for negotiating with uh, Saddam Hussein to allow the OPCW to make unannounced visits. And Bolton told Bustani, you have 24 hours to leave the organization. And if you don't comply with this decision by Washington, we have ways to retaliate against you. Pause. We know where your kids live. You have two sons in New York. Jesus, Bolton said that to... Bolton said that, and Miller reported that the White House was pressuring Bustani, except she right. described it as Bustani being too much of a wimp, and not because John Bolton was literally threatening to put a hit on his kids. And, and, and this is all crescendoing in mid-2002, basically, at a time when the U.S. is starting to do a lot of this sort of subterranean-level muscling that, by the end of the year, will come out in full force. I have no problem talking about the New York Times as a monolith in the lead-up to the war, because, as we don't even really need to go into, they editorialized in favor of it, and their star reporter and the person they gave the most oxygen to was a relentless propagandist for it. But there were other reporters at the time, I'm, I'm sure very frustrated reporters, who were uncovering all kinds of ways in which this... This supposed, you know, Hollywood-style 
screenplay type narrative that was that was building the case was either um thinly sourced or entirely fabricated but what may have felt like kind of a low hum of a war effort developing throughout 2002 really amped up during a period of time that i like to call black september on september 8th judith miller and a co-byline story with another reporter michael r gordon who co-bylined a bunch of these but is basically understood not to have supplied the bulk of the erroneous reporting he simply just is he, is, he said he just put the part where it said Iraq is a country in the Middle East. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Saddam Hussein is the president. True. September 8th, there's a story. Threats and responses. The Iraqis. U.S. says Hussein intensifies quest for A-bomb parts. Yeah. This is the story about Saddam's acquisition of aluminum tubes. Tube time. Tube time. I call it tube time. And these were centri- these were tubes that were supposedly only could be used for centrifuges and were a sign that Saddam was ramping up his effort to acquire a nuke. Five days later on September 13th, Baghdad's arsenal. The White House lists Iraq's step to build banned weapons, describing the whole litany of measures that Iraq was supposedly taking to assemble the weapons it wasn't supposed to have. Just want to jump in and say that in the course of these, uh, whatever, articles or reports from from Judith Miller, she left out the fact that Hussein Kamel, who we talked about a couple episodes, uh, who we talked about a couple episodes ago, had defected in the 90s and told uh, UN inspectors that Iraq had destroyed all of its WMDs back in the 90s. That, that was a, you'd think that would be a fact that would be presented alongside all the other reporting, but it was, not in the, it was not in the conversation. Well, it's a thing, because it's funny you say that, because then the next article that she wrote in that month, on September 18th, was about weapons inspection. The headline being, verification is difficult at best, say the experts, and maybe impossible. I mean, you bring up the, uh, the weapons inspectors thing, like, a, a, a huge part about this, and especially, like, in terms of, like, the media's role in it is I remember like at the time in like, yeah, 2002, especially when they like, they were really, you know, Afghanistan, like that was easy to do because the people, you know, Al Qaeda was in Afghanistan, but what they, you know, as we all know that what they really wanted was Iraq and that would take, you know, a year's worth of laying the groundwork and the media helping them out with that. A huge part of that was demonizing vilifying and just casting doubt overall on like the weapons inspectors yeah in them individually hans blix and yep. others anyone involved Remember scott ritter scott oh, ritter there's a big womp womp <laughs> yeah. conclusion to that story uh, with him personally but yeah he was no, he was really going yeah, for i it. remember like even even before hans blix it was like the 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 near enemy that had to be defeated first before they could get their big enemy was Anyone involved in the UN's weapons inspections teams or any expert on international arms control or biological weapons that would would or could have the expertise or knowledge or experience to cast doubt on any of this. So the media effort to uh, d- demonize the entire the weapons inspectors themselves personally, but the entire program in general was like the key thing to like make it seem like. Not only they they don't know what they're doing, but they're being denied access to sites. That they're being bullied, and and they're like they're just like they can't get the job done. Right? Like they're they, either they're they're this they're, they're when they say they're not finding anything, they're lying or are too bitch made to like right. get to the real shit. Right. Iraq is still hiding shit, and like yeah, like they are these Inspector Clouseau like figures uh, just being run around in circles by like a dastardly conspiracy of evil that is so vast that like it's hiding a a secret a nuclear weapons program yeah well the schrodinger's nuke 
point of the story where the Times is then just saying, you know what, we basically can't ever be sure that we could verify it. I mean, at that point, well, you're, it's, but you're pushing the, that there's no way of ever knowing except invading and finding this out. Is, and this is the Meghan McArdle style of argumentation. Right. That when the facts provided with you are heavily weighed against the argument that you're trying to make, you what you say is, well, what... What do, what are facts? What is knowledge? Yeah. What is knowledge? Well, can, we, can anyone really <laughs> well, ever it, know anything? They all Manuel just, Kant once. Well, this yeah. is the thing: is that these, like the Times editorial board, for example, because their own newspaper was reporting all of this as fact, they took it as fact. The day that Judith Miller is writing in the New York Times about how the nuclear weapons and the nuclear weapons inspectors are, you know, faced with this impossible challenge and that they'll never ever be able to find anything, and it's uh, it's such a tragedy. You have the New York Times writing in its own editorial declaring if and when attempts at a full scale weapons inspection fail, the security council should be prepared to give its explicit consent to the use of force. Well, this is also like a really important point about the, like the, the weapons inspection regime and the way the media um, covered it is that when like the weapons inspectors would say, we're not finding anything that was used as proof that there must be of something course. there. Of course. The more you don't find, <laughs> yeah. the more dastardly and nefarious that we know that what's really going on is even more terrifying because like if it were like if they really didn't have anything we would have found something. Just an underground, like when yeah, the cartoons exactly. when the camera goes into the earth and you see like dinosaur skeletons and stuff. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah, deep, yeah. deep in the earth's crust, Saddam has a functioning centrifuge that is 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 about to blow everybody. And not up. only that, but this reflects perfectly, like it echoes and matches because it's the exact same people. What the Team B program in the Pentagon exactly. in the eighties in the early like Reagan administration did about these supposedly secret Soviet doomsday nuclear weapons programs, where they would take their and like the analysis to like the CIA or the State Department who would be like, there's no evidence for any of this. Or like anyone who even spoke Russian or had any familiarity with the physics or like, yeah. you know, a, a, a application of like how to build a nuclear weapon or anything like it. And they said like these satellite images you're showing us show, show you, show us nothing. There's nothing yep. there. And they, they would go, aha. Yep. But of course it shows nothing. Yep. The fact that we can't find anything just proves even beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Soviets have an even more secret, even more dangerous secret doomsday weapon. One, uh, one Paul Wolfowitz, Paul Wolfowitz was a part of team B. Richard yeah. Pearl. And, and again, yes. it's like, I say it echoes, but it's the exact same people doing the exact same thing with the exact same arguments. The difference being that this time around, they had, way, shall we say, a way more close and intimate relationship with, for instance, the New York Times. Yeah. And the, a certain reporter we're just talking about. That kind of thing happens in a war. It has to be expected. If you're in a war, you're going to lose a building and a plane and maybe a small town and a schoolroom. You should reckon about once every week. Get ready for it. 9-11 gave people like a sense of purpose and excitement that uh, that they didn't have throughout like the 90s or even 80s or like or even during the first Gulf War. It was just like finally America, like we as journalists, like we're no longer just sort of like describing the world after the fact that it, that it happened. Like we're making it. Like, we are part of something. We have a mission. We have a grander purpose and narrative that has imbued our life with an excitement and a, and a glamour 
and a, and a purpose that was lacking before, like martial vigor and spirit. Yeah. And, and, but also like a sexiness and a, like, and again, excitement. Cinematic. Just try, yeah. They weren't just like, you know, uh, covering, uh, the president's sorted blowjobs in the right. Oval Office or, right. you know, just like grinding. Deficit ceiling. Yeah, bullshit like that. It was just like that they were, you know, yeah, they were they were part of like a, like a, a, part of a new greatest generation that had, that most importantly, had an, had an evil, had a villain in the world, like, you know, that met the scale of American might and power. Miller would go on to write a whole bunch of other stories that would help midwife the invasion of Iraq. But it's really her bylines at this critical moment that sort of provide the substance of the case for war that would get presented at the UN and that Americans would see play before their eyes on TV for the following months. She reported as fact that the Iraqis were acquiring materials to develop WMD and that there was nothing inspectors could do to prove otherwise. And if the U.S. were to get on with an invasion, it would need to strap in and support the real network of exiles in opposition who knew how to take reins of the country, particularly the INC led by one Ahmed Chalabi. It's no coincidence that this particular version of facts ended with Chalabi triumphantly returning to Iraq with full-throated, with full-throated U.S. support to lead the Iraqi people. Because according to an email that Judith Miller herself wrote to the New York Times Baghdad bureau chief, an email that was made public in 2005, she said that Chalabi, quote, has provided most of the front page exclusives on WMD to our paper. She would later actually say that well, those kinds of emails are just the things that reporters say in the heat of the moment. The, the email, that email, was made public by Howard Kurtz, who is then a media reporter for The Washington Post, but who these days is a stooge host on Fox News, yep. which is uh, ironically where Judith Miller gets her paycheck to be on TV these days. Once we invaded in March 2003, Miller worked fucking overtime to defend her reporting from allegations that she had been taken in by the Chalabi bullshit network. Because what was increasingly becoming clear was that Chalabi had constructed this, you know, parallel intel network that was feeding information to Cheney and Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld and so on. And in this case, also, part of where it, things start to get a little bit complicated, I think, as you know, when Miller, for example, insists that she, you know, like, she didn't really mean that all of the front page exclusive came from Chalabi, which is, no, you're right. They probably didn't all come from Chalabi, but they came from all the same people who were drinking from the same, like, river of sewage at different points. And yeah. sometimes those sto that, st that story would come from Chalabi. Other time it would come from other parts of, of the Bush administration. It would come from Talkmed Rollaby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Two completely different sources. The Times and ultimately ended up writing a mea culpa for all of her fuck-ups and everything in 2004 um, without ever mentioning her by name, but acknowledging that they got a really? lot of the facts around. Yeah. Oh, wow. I think if you want a really full fist... What did they, what did they say in, in, that, in that piece? So the Times mea culpa from the editors, the Times in Iraq... Over the last year, this newspaper has shown the bright light of hindsight on decisions that led the United <laughs> States into Iraq. We've examined the failings of American and allied intelligence, especially on the issue of Iraq's weapons and possible Iraqi connections to international terrorists. We have studied the allegations of official gullibility and hype. It is past time we turned the same light on ourselves. The one thing that they do note, however, and they name check this person, is that they say that, quote, the most prominent of the anti-Saddam campaigners, Ahmed Chalabi, has been named as an occasional source in Times articles since at least 1991 and has introduced reporters to other exiles. He became a far favorite hardliners within the Bush administration and a paid broker of information from Iraqi exiles until his payments were cut off um, 
last week. That was in 2004, by the way. The Times said they're sorry, but really, that they didn't provide a fully honest accounting. And if you want to find that honest accounting... And again, it's 2004, so the war is just churning, well underway. churning in full force into just one slaughterhouse after another. If you want to get a full accounting of Judith Miller, the most readable one without having to, like, you know, read, like, 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 assemble a whole bunch of books um, is the journalist Michael Massing's piece in the New York Review of Books from February 2004. Um, the headline is Now They Tell Us. Um, it's a really, really good documented accounting of all the specifics of Miller's fuck Welcome back to my guest tonight. Former investigative reporter for the New York Times, currently a commentator for Fox News. Her new book is called The Story a reporter's journey. Please welcome to the program, Judith Miller. Come on out. The intelligence was what it was. We, you know, people like me couldn't make it up. wasn't what it was, and, and not everybody got it wrong. Almost, Ru- almost everybody did, except for Knight Ritter. You don't, you don't believe that you were manipulated? Or all, that you all journalists, it. all journalists are manipulated, and all politicians lie. So Judith Miller was just one reporter at one newspaper, and yeah, we don't want to. I mean, th- that that is a very she was she was a very 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 important conduit for all this. Stuff, and she's but. a great example of how the shitty information that was flowing to the White House from Chalabi that they enthusiastically used to goose their case for war was also the same information that was going to Judith Miller and led us to this kind Chal- of. It's like Chalabi was like the puppet master of all this either. No. He had his own agenda. Yeah. And it was like everyone was telling each other lies that they wanted to hear. Yeah. I don't think Judith Miller I mean, I guess like maybe at some point she's just like, oh, I believe what they're telling me. But at, at some point it, like again, whether it's the Office of Special Plans, it's Judith Miller, it's the entire media, at no point does anyone actually have to be like I'm being lied to or I'm consciously telling a lie. It's because everyone is telling each other. It's a game of telephone where everyone is telling each other the exact thing that they want to hear, which is what they need to hear to get the war in Iraq done. And they all want it for different reasons. They all have different reasons to either believe, disbelieve. It doesn't matter. Like everyone is conning everyone else. It's all just one big circle. And like, there's like, it's all just one big grift. Like nobody, nobody is really the mark here except for the fucking sucker reading the New York times. Credit default swap style, you know, news reports are being passed around and being stacked into each other and mixed up with each other. Exactly. Sell that to someone else. And then they'll make a new stack and sell it back to you. And like you know, like they like the, in retrospect, like they can now pretend like oh, so confusing that Ahmed Chalabi, yeah, like yeah. you know, like that what a what a that nefarious villain he yeah. was. Yeah, he just yeah. Oh, he was just too damn believable. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. Our sources were just too good. Yeah, yeah. Like, we had no reason to disbelieve them. Yeah, but, yeah. But again, like their reason was not like the New York Times. Like, oh, let's lie on behalf of the Bush administration to start a war. Right. There was just like, as you quoted Harold Lanes, get us a Pulitzer. Yep. How do you get the Pulitzer? By telling the stories that no one else can. Right. How do you tell those stories? By getting the information that no one else has. Who's giving you that information? The people who want you to have it. And, and you know, there are other names. Walter Pincus at the Washington Post. Former CIA guy. Jeffrey Goldberg at the New Yorker, who we'll be talking about Former later. prison concentration uh, camp guard. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, Bob Woodward at the Washington Post, who's reporting... The Office the- of Space Naval Intelligence. <laughs> um, Not a joke. Not a joke. None of those are jokes. God, none of those are satire. Nope. And by early 2003, editorial boards around the country were saying, you know, the Denver Post, the Washington Post, the Dallas Morning News, the San Antonio Express News, the Tampa Tribune... They're all either unequivocally or with very slight equivocation saying, all right, I think it's it's time we take action on Iraq. And 
that said, there were still a handful, a very small number of journalists who did get it right. Or at least people who said that the slam dunk case for war was not actually such a slam dunk. Um, the most famous of these were the Knight Ritter newspaper chains, Washington Bureau. There's a story in the New York Times this morning. Um, this is, uh, I don't, and I want to attribute to the Times. I don't want to talk about, obviously, uh, specific intelligence sources. But Now, ordinarily, information uh, like the aluminum tubes wouldn't, wouldn't appear. It was top secret intelligence. And the vice president and the national security advisor would not be allowed to talk about this on the Sunday talk shows. But it appeared that morning in the New York Times, and therefore they were able to talk about it. Knight Ritter was running the mirror image headlines, but just the ones that didn't get cable play. For example, September 6, 2002, lack of hard evidence of Iraqi weapons worries top U.S. officials. September 12th, 2002, Iraq has been unable to get materials needed for nuclear bomb, experts say. October 4th, 2002, CIA report reveals analysts split over extent of Iraqi nuclear threat, and so on and so on. There were voices who were saying things contrary to what the rest of the media seem to be saying. And not opinion pieces, not loopy lefties saying, I love Saddam and I, I, I hope he does have WMD and he kills all of our troops. It was, this was reporting. This was actual, uh, whatever, gumshoe I mean, which is important because it's like uh, the examples of Knight Ritter shows that it's not like, yeah, like the whole media were just so right. buffaloed by this thing. Right. Like if, if the New York Times was an ethical institution or a professional news organization uh, they would they would have they would have exposed all of this stuff they would have had these same stories they would have questioned this they stuff. could have they could have absolutely if they wanted to but they didn't want to yeah and again it's like it's I mean, not to psychoanalyze it too much it's hard to say like were they actively thinking like oh hoo, hoo, I can't wait to help the Bush administration lie us into a war but I think the broader point with most of these people if you go down the list is that I think like they just assumed that like 9-11 changed everything yeah we're a new country now. Yep. And most importantly, they're from a generation and certainly a generation of journalists that like, you know, their self-mythology is so greatly tied up in the Vietnam War and the experience of like the heroic journalists who exposed the lies of that war. But I think, again, not to psychoanalyze them too much, I think all of them feel kind of guilty about that. And that Iraq or like post 9-11 America was going to be the test case for America finally getting over Vietnam. And the way to get over that is, like, we can be a war country again, and we're going to do a war that's good. We're going to be the good guys, and the press is going to work with the military and government and not turn the public against it or demonize the troops yep. or do any of the things that we did in the Vietnam War that we supposedly think is like the the highest calling of the yes. American press. Yes. And the thing is, it's just like, it's also, the war is going to happen. Yep. All the serious people agree that we're going to do it. Yep. And it doesn't really matter why, but it's going to happen. And if we don't get on board, we're going to look like assholes. And let's not forget that Judy Miller was, uh, supposed, was supposed to be working on a larger project in uh, post-invasion, which was an account of the WMD hunt in post-war Iraq, the, the successful WMD yeah. hunt in post-war Iraq. That never materialized, but... I mean, that's as much well, of age. Did, she, did she ever write that book? What was it called? If he had them <laughs> after nine eleven, a lot of people's brains were were broken. Yeah. Not just in politics, but also among the American people. A newspaper reporter at a reporter at the Washington Post told Michael Massing, for example, that whenever they ran an anti-war piece, they would just get tons of hate mail. 
and they would get threats and all these people claiming that they were un-American. So there was already a climate that was conditioning people to accept information. Yeah, well, we talked about this in an earlier episode, obviously. You know, you have to establish the the orgiastic, uh, like, xenophobia that overcame the country after 9-11 to understand a lot of what came next. Um, and I remember... Uh, and we pointed out that um, Jonathan Alter piece, I don't know if you ever saw this, where he literally just wrote a headline and said, well, I guess it's time to torture now. Everyone talk about incentives, talk about it's like some of it was calculation. Judy Miller had a book that she was going to get paid for, possibly. But Jonathan Alter wasn't getting a fucking raise for writing I Want to Torture no, People. Was, he just was, felt like this a was what they all patriotic felt. guy, I guess. And, and, when, and, when, and when there were people who felt contrary, when there were people who said, actually, let's take another... Look at this. Let's or let's at least have a different forum, uh, a different forum. They were marginalized quickly and swiftly. And, Is that and, Phil Donahue's music? Right yeah. Here? The best example of this was the legendary uh, news talk show host Phil Donahue, who was perhaps the only sane voice on cable news during this time. Uh, what happened to you directly uh, as a as a uh, uh, a host on MSNBC in the midst of the, the run up to the war? The biggest lesson I think is the how corporate media shapes our opinions and our coverage. They were terrified of the anti-war voice, and that is not an overstatement. Um, can I just say, though, uh, do you know what the title of the MSNBC programming... Because we should say, Phil Donahue was on MSNBC in particular. Yes. The liberal MSNBC. Even back then, it wasn't quite as uh, lean forward or whatever it is now, but it was definitely supposed to be an alternative. Yeah, it was supposed podcast. to be like... A, it was supposed to be not CNN, but definitely like Mirror Image. Do you know what the, the, the name of the show was that replaced Donahue? What? It was a running segment called Countdown Iraq. <laughs> God damn it. And it was just generals and, you know, flax and people who couldn't wait to get the war going. Another example of it is that uh, even I don't know the names of the Knight Ritter and McClatchy reporters who right. got everything right. I don't have tumors in my body named after them. Right. I'm sure they weren't drummed out of media, but they haven't been promoted as highly as Jeffrey fucking Goldberg. Yeah. For no, instance. there should have been, obviously, in, in, any, in any rational understanding of of good work, uh, reaping rewards. They they should be something like the household name, or the at least the industry name that some that all of the people who fucked up or intentionally uh, led us to war. The now only have. one who's like suffered any like minor professional consequences is Judy Miller, yes. who like her. The other, but I suffer. I mean, she's like only on Fox News now because that's the only one who takes her seriously. Yes. which like maybe from where she once was is a demotion. Right, but like. Pfft, Whatever, she's still getting paid. She's still in the fucking media. Sure. Like, well, the vast majority of these people not only have not suffered any professional consequences for, let's be honest, fucking up as a journalist or a commentator in like the biggest possible way you can do, uh, they've all been promoted. They've all failed upwards because I think like what this is a textbook example of like they're promoted not in spite of it but because of it. What's well, not a scandal because if oh, they've proven that they 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 did their job. For the people who run these magazines or own these magazines or like their sources or yep. whoever, yep. They, they're they're part of the Costa Nostra. Yep. They were willing to take the hit for the team to get done what was needed to get done, and yep. that's why people like David Frum and Jeffrey Goldberg are still on your TV or in your fucking magazines and newspapers. So one of the like to your point about how it wasn't just Judith Miller, the Washington Post also ran on its front page a huge number of stories that you know just. Inherited the Bush administration line. 
Um, for example, stories that didn't make the front page include observers, evidence for war lacking, report against Iraq holds little that's <laughs> Danger. new. Danger. Reverse course, please. Unwanted debate on Iraq Al-Qaeda links revived. UN finds no proof of nuclear program. IAEA unable to verify U.S. claims. Bin Laden, Hussein Link, hazy. U.S. increases estimated cost of war in Iraq. U.S. lacks specific on banned arms. Legality of war is a matter of debate. Many scholars doubt assertion by Bush. Bush clings to dubious allegations about Iraq. And again, and like, Will, as you said, in the in the alternate universe, with the we're in the one with everyone has the goatee. The evil <laughs> yeah, Spock we're in the mirror, mirror, and the in evil the regular Spock. Good yeah. universe. All of those non-page one stories would have been like in the Vietnam era, slapped with a huge splash in front of everyone yeah, every single day. Like links between Saddam and Al Qaeda, hazy. Yeah, Un- like, uh, case dubious. Like, UN no, finds no evidence, no evidence for nukes. Found. You know, that like, the thing been... is like the fact that all of those stories existed shows that like you know. Uh, it's, there's no, there's no mystery or like conspiracy. Like, we, like the press can be competent or like do its job. But like, I think the thing was, at the time that this was going on, the war was so fucking popular and like Bush was so popular that I really just thought, even if there, th- these people like on some level probably just thought to themselves, even if there are no, even if we don't find any WMDs, even if all our A one reporting is shown to be <laughs> fraudulent. Yeah. The war will be such a success and everyone will be so happy with it and people will be cheering and kissing our troops in the street yep. that if we front load a story that makes this all look like shit, like we'll look bad too. Yes. Or like we want to get we want to get on the team for the big victory. Whatever else you can say about this war, let me just make one point. George Bush is not fighting this like Vietnam. Whatever the we don't need to refight the whole Saddam history of Vietnam. Maybe that's the danger of Saddam. But, but it's not going to happen. Let me take it's a not call going to happen. From this Park. is going to be a two-month war, not a Park Hill. Year war. I think it's time we start talking about some Cretans. So all of that was vegetables. Uh, that was the story of how the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, the the, the whatever the papers of record covered the the war. But now, uh, just for a little bit, I think we can have some fun with. People who, if you listen to Will's show, my old show that, that you're familiar with today of the, the duck hunt, this is more of the pundit side. So let's just do a little bit of a tour. I've, I've divided this chronologically. It's the sort of days after 9-11, the build up to Iraq, and then things start to go off the rails, and then where they were basically at the end of the Bush term. All right, so uh, let's get into the... the, the these next ones are, are, are easy drive-bys. They, they encapsulate the uh, war chubby that everyone was getting. Just triumphalism, Afghanistan out of the way. Liberals come on board. The water's fine. Let's all get behind the idea of war in Iraq. Here's Bill Christie and Robert Kagan. Weekly Standard, January 2002. Quote, if bin Laden had left Central Asia, he'll be hard to find. Who knows how long it may take. Meanwhile, history moves on and the clock is ticking in Iraq. So just like immediately just declaring, uh, bin Laden, uh, we're done with that. I, that yeah, no, this is like, yeah, 2002. Be like, yeah, like, uh, that guy that we convinced everyone is the most evil person alive who literally did 9-11 and killed 3,000 Americans on yep. one day. Yep. If we get him, maybe we will, maybe we won't. Yep. Who cares? It doesn't really matter. Meanwhile, the march of history goes on <laughs> every yeah. day. Yeah. Saddam Hussein. Yeah. The thing's on the move. And There's our boys in blue. Don't they <laughs> yeah. look fine? Hey, boys, say hello to the camera, boys. So then, uh, which, th- should have been, which should kind of have been a, been a clue about yeah. like how what, what, what was really going on with these people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Osama escaped and uh, looking back at the clips and everything everyone's kind of fine with it they just go like okay wow you let him escape I thought we were going to catch him anyway I uh, mean I think that like they're you know they're able to do that because uh 
Osama didn't exactly have much luck in ever getting anything further off the ground. Sure, I think they knew that he it was it was a one. Exactly. They saw uh, we talked about Al Qaeda. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Earlier and it's like as we go through this list, it's like for me, like to this day, I'm like, if we're so much of my like current politics or like you know like view of the world is the Iraq War and like how people in this country responded to it, especially in the media. But to me, it's just like it's the liberals that are so much more fascinating and, and an interesting case of like how evil works in our world because like look mm-hmm. the conservatives or like the neocons or whatever if you're fucking Charles Krauthammer or any of these fucking ghouls it's like no big surprise sure. that they want war to happen and that they glorify and exalt it and it like gets them off when they think about American military men and missiles fucking shredding some you know Muslimic style terrorists or (laughs) getting doing good by getting rid of evil in the world there's no surprise that that gets their dick off it's the liberals that fascinate me even more because it was like as I mentioned to you earlier that this the, the, the transparent need with which they wanted to prove themselves to be like we're not like the Vietnam liberals. We can be against war if, if it's a bad war, but if it's a good war, we won't just reflexively be against war because that's unserious. To your very point there, in this part of the timeline, I have Michael Walzer, who is a political theorist. He's the co-editor of Dissent. You know, that's that doesn't even tout itself as liberal so much as left liberal or whatever. Walzer also enlightened after his younger years as, you know, like a, a, a new left Ruffian, he's he's over that. He's he's older and wiser. He took the incredibly important moment before the war in Iraq to chide leftists for quote the radical failure of the left's response to 9/11 and the global war on terror. And this is what he wrote in 2002: quote Stop the bombing wasn't a slogan that summarized a coherent view of the bombing or of the alternatives to it. The truth is that most leftists were not committed to having a coherent view about things like that. They were committed to opposing the war. In the second half of the 20th century, the United States fought both just and unjust wars. It would be a useful exercise to work through the lists and test our capacity to make distinctions, to recognize, say, that the U.S. was wrong in Guatemala in 1956 and right in Kosovo in 1999. And that just when you were just speaking there about liberals, I think that was a key moment that, you know, this isn't a Balkans podcast, uh, but the Kosovo intervention 99 was a war in which we did not get UN approval to do it, acted unilaterally, and the bombing of a country absolutely 100% exacerbated the problems that we claimed we were there to solve. I think of our modern era that, that we're talking about, the first good liberal war, Kosovo. So it was this assist into Iraq. And the war and and the the bad wars that we'd fought, not since Vietnam had any of them yielded any actual consequences for America. So there's also the fact that it's very easy for liberals to forget about the you know bad wars because even if the Gulf War did make you uncomfortable and even if Grenada did make you uncomfortable, it didn't matter because that when the time did come where you had to make a choice about whether to go to war, it was very easy if like you're you know doing what Walzer's doing and going through some weird internal ledger of like good war bad war and to come to the conclusion that well it doesn't quite matter which one this will be in because right. none of the other ones. Like ultimately meant shit to us. I think also going forward in general, a good thing to remember is a lot of these things were written while or after the Afghanistan war was uh, supposedly being wrapped up. Yeah, if the higher beings that find this in like a thousand years, uh, please let us know how that ended. The only country that will still somehow be around is Afghanistan. And, <laughs> and, 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 uh, next, Tom Friedman, 
Everyone's favorite. Oh, the best. Just the king. king. Yes. The absolute king. Uh, roll that suck on this clip. And what they needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house from Basra to Baghdad um, and basically saying, which part of this sentence don't you understand? You don't think, you know, we care uh, about our open society. You think this bubble fantasy, we're just going to let it grow. Well, suck on this. Okay. That, Charlie, was what this war was about. New York Times, July 31st, 2002. What he's about to say here, this did not happen. Quote, let's say a U.S. invasion works. <laughs> and in short order, Saddam is ousted and replaced by an Iraqi Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Or just a, <laughs> a Rocky Thomas Jefferson who also owns slaves. Yeah, exactly. He's also this, a slave owner. What, yeah, yeah. The, the analogy in full. Or just a nice general ready to abandon Iraq's nuclear weapons programs and rejoin the family <laughs> of nations. Uh, just, 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 just to be clear, he's saying like that's that's like the basic thing we can expect. Yeah. That would mean Iraq would be able to modernize all its oil fields, attract foreign investment, and in short order ramp up its oil production to its long sought capacity of five million barrels a day. Where he's going with this is the bottom line: a quick victory that brings Iraq fully back into the oil market could lead to a sharp fall in oil incomes throughout OPEC that could seriously weaken the oil cartel and rob its many autocratic regimes of the income they need to maintain their closed political systems. In fact, give me sustained $10 a barrel oil and I'll give you revolutions from Iran to Saudi Arabia and throw in Venezuela. Which is a very interesting uh, yeah, little name wow. check there. Wow! Just yeah, yeah. Throw in Venezuela. Yeah. And this is also hilarious because Thomas Friedman would go on to be like the American press agent for Mohammed bin Salman's uh, yes, Saudi Vision 2020. And in and, and closing, there, if that scenario prevails, you could look at an invasion of Iraq as a possible two-for-one sale: destroy Saddam and destabilize OPEC at the same time. Buy one, get one free. What a stupid fucking yeah, baby. Yeah, you remember this kind of rhetoric at the time where it's just like, I mean, obviously... You just we throw know, shit at the wall and see what well, sticks. Well, yeah, I mean, half the people didn't mean it, but they're like, yeah, and once we're done with Iraq, we'll move on to other really evil places like Saudi Arabia. We all, Syria. It's yeah. Just, yeah, or Syria, places that... I mean, Iran, I think they meant, but they never meant ever that we were going to challenge the Saudi order. Saudi Arabia. Yeah, Saudi yeah. Arabia. Uh, okay, here's the, uh, here's the boy who's still pissing everybody off today. Jonathan Shait in an article called Why Liberals Should Support the War. And I just want to note that uh, years later, he would also write Why Liberals Should Support a Trump Nomination. <laughs> but, like the same exact fucking language. Uh, but, for, but the first version was Why Liberals Should Support the War. Uh, the only thing I'll really quote from here was, ultimately the, ultimately, the central question is, does war with Iraq promote liberal foreign policy principles? The answer is yes, it does. And... I got to say, you might as well agree with that, because as you pointed out, there was a case for war basically made by Clinton that maybe he never really wanted to follow through. But all the bullshit stuff, like if we had gotten it rubber stamped by the U.N. the second time, you could square all of this with like the Kosovo if War. We had, like a couple more allies. Yeah, that's or, like, all Like if that we really just filled out the proper forms, like and, these people would have, or done it with like a better plans, they would have all been fucking fine with yeah. it. Yeah. And look at all the libs who over the past couple years have supported things like a coup in Venezuela or equivocated, if not outright supported, regime change in Bolivia. Uh, here's Nick Kristoff, New York Times, September 2002. Uh, he's writing a lot about the, you know, the, the winds of war and, and w where we're going. Myself, I'm a wimp on Iraq. I'm in favor of invading, but only if we can win easily. <laughs> and I guess points for what? honesty. Yeah, wow. Uh, but that was, that? yeah, September 2002. 
Link in the in the show description. I mean, like I know that we earlier we were like stressing that look, it wasn't just the New York Times, but like a lot of it. Like lot really, of it man. Of <laughs> uh, so so there's some lib stuff. Back to conservatives. Fred Barnes. He's, another, he's a good one. Yeah, uh, April 2004 in the Weekly Standard, doing the full victim blame, which was of course pervasive. About Iraq, because at this point, okay, 2004, we're in, we're in Iraq. We've we've been occupying for for uh, over oh yeah, a year. And it's turned into a total right charnel house. So at this point, the bodies are piling up. The democracy is not flourishing. Uh, the, the <laughs> Nicholas Kristof has been, <laughs> is now saying, "Wow, I shouldn't have been for this war because <laughs> yes. it's not easy." So yes. retroactively, I'm against it. Yes, uh, here's Fred Barnes. The transformation of the country into a peaceful free market democracy is a bigger, more demanding, and far more difficult project than you ever dreamed. Nonetheless, a year after the fall of Saddam Hussein, Operation Iraqi Freedom has gained impressive momentum. Iraq has traffic jams, street life, drinkable water, reasonably reliable reasonably reliable electricity, and is about to experience an extraordinary economic boom. But don't assume a growing economy and declining terrorism spell success. There's a serious obstacle remaining. The attitude of many Iraqis. <laughs> Jesus so, Christ. A, he's wrong about everything that he Jesus projected there. Christ. And in fact, as we'll discuss soon, uh, post-war electricity levels did not actually meet pre-war electricity levels for much of the first year of the occupation and onward. Drinkable water is a uh, generous way of describing the infrastructure after we uh, thrashed them with sanctions for 10 years. Traffic jams and street life is another way of talking about um, marketplace bombings and roadside bombs. But then at the end there, just if anything will go wrong, it's going to be the fault of these just small-minded people. Yeah. Oh, the article ends like this. I'd like to see one other thing in Iraq. An outbreak of gratitude for the greatest act of benevolence one country has ever done for another. A grateful Iraqi heart would be a sign of a new Iraqi attitude and signal of sure success. So, uh, just really makes you... Censored. These, these, are, the, like, these are the absolute fucking demons yes who uh like this is yeah this is a, that that thing at the end there about an outbreak of gratitude for the most benevolent act this is the closest thing to like honesty that these people are capable of yes they're like serial killers who write letters to the families of their victims yes i i i'm going to wait outside of the iraqi embassy as they come bouncing out <laughs> yes yeah so here's uh well I, david brooks Lib, conservative, don't really know. Some kind of weird, just annoying man. Just just cuck. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Doesn't matter. Here he is, back in the days when I think we we can say he was, styled himself as more of a conservative rather than a wishy-washy centrist, because he's in the Weekly Standard. April 28th, 2003. A couple of weeks after the invasion, Brooks wrote that the anti-war left would soon have to confront how wrong they were. Quote, There will be no magic aha moment that brings the dream palaces down. Even if Saddam's remains are found, even if weapons of mass destruction are displayed, even if Iraq starts to move along a winding, muddled path towards normalcy, no day will come when the enemies of this endeavor will turn around and say, we were wrong. Bush was right. Nevertheless, the frame of the debate will shift. The war's opponents will lose the self-confidence and vitality, and they will backtrack. Smash cut to David Brooks in 2004 in the New York Times. The first thing to say is, I never thought it would be this bad. (laughs) (laughs) And he still still kind of goes, oh, I I think in 20 years it'll be good. And I I don't fully retract it, but just that absolute smug uh, certainty that the anti-war people are going to be the ones backtracking. And And then a year later. It's also really prescient with Brooks about like talking about like, you know, 
they'll never say we were wrong, but they'll lose their confidence and vitality. Yep. It's just like with the, it's just the pure projection in all of his columns where it's just like the, the, every, every day that goes on, his confidence and vitality is just <laughs> sapped from him bit by bit until yep. he, write, until he write, has to write a whole book called The Second Mountain about yep. like being able to get a boner again past yep. 50 in your life. So now we're in the section of recognition that things did not go as planned. There's only among the real hardcore is triumphalism still there. And even those who supported the war now have, they have to acknowledge that, that something has gone wrong. Uh, I've titled the section, I was wrong, but for the right reasons. The, the one that really sums it up is the New Republic. New Republic, obviously, probably the gold standard for liberal advocacy for the war. That's right. Where, it was the intellectual journal of like liberal hawks. Like, there was, was writing. Like Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Pollack, who wrote yep. the book, The Threatening Storm. Yep. Paul, Bur- uh, Paul Berman, Berman. He was a TNR contributor. Uh, obviously, Leon Wieseltier. Uh, pre-cancellation, uh, Leon. I mean, and, and Marty Parrots, most of all, who owned the magazine at the time and, and served as its publisher. This was they, they they were the biggest cheerleaders of the we vote for Democrats and have PhDs camp. Editorial from 2004 in June. It was titled not "We Were Wrong," period, but "Were We Wrong?" Question <laughs> mark. Quote. Should we have known that the key assumption underlying our strategic rationale for war would prove false? In retrospect, we should have paid more attention to these warning signs. But at the time, there seemed good reason not to. We feel regret, but no shame. Which is, again, I mean, honesty, best policy. <sighs> Sorry, it's just you, you bring up Kenneth Pollock yes. real quick. Yeah, his book, I, in, uh, The Threatening Storm, The mm, Case for Invading Iraq. That was the guy who was like, look, we're liberals, we're serious, we know the facts. We're not like these crazy, like neocons or whatever but Kenneth Pollock he's a serious guy this book is the best possible case and like if you read it you will be for the war I think in the Chapo book I described it as the Turner Diaries yes. for the liberal hawk set yes. <laughs> but I just want to read real quick this is from another mea culpa this is from Matt Iglesias's Four Reasons for a Mistake that was his stab at a mea culpa for being uh, you know a big hawk for the Iraq war. Big piggy. He lists four, four reasons four strands of argumentation that led to them being wrong Uh, The fourth and last one is just Kenneth Pollack. And he says here, the formal case for war that I found compelling was Kenneth Pollack's The Threatening Storm. I discussed this book in some detail in my own book, but to make a long story short, its argumentative structure is badly flawed. Roughly speaking, he says, if we invade Iraq and a pony shows up, that will be better than the alternatives. Therefore, invading Iraq is better than trying to muddle through, which is great, except we're missing the pony. <laughs> this problem is what Robert Farrelly's Jedi principle is about. <laughs> okay, I we don't even have time to go into. Yeah, but where's the pony? What, the pony never showed up. Why didn't we know that the pony wasn't there yet? It, it, I mean, this, this, this speaks to, like, you know, conservatives... In, of this period, like they, like I said, their their dick was fully on hard, and they all just thought of themselves as like military men and Rambo and tough guys. And this was their like gritty, no holds barred, like fucking cigar chomping Sergeant Rock and his howling commandos moment. The liberals, like fucking Iglesias and all of these cowards, like again, the way they talk about it is just so telling. Yep, it's just it's so fucking childish. They're like 
we're the, but our problem was we were we were thinking about this is the this Green is Lantern called, theory this is of the, power. This is the the Gallifreyan fallacy, as known on yeah. Doctor Who, about yeah, yeah. like the yep. just like fucking just a total fantasy. As we read it, it is hard to decide which one is more like uh, physically revolting because you read that Fred Barnes thing and it's like, yeah. wow, this is the most evil thing you could possibly say. But then you read that you'd say the Jedi I, theory I, of I, power, and I, I I find some of the anti-war uh, advocates are um, indulging in the Green Lantern <laughs> fallacy. Yep. Uh, just just to patch this in before about the New Republic thing, the WMD case, uh, they originally accepted. That's been disproven, but they still went on. Because again, there's a question mark at the end of their post. Were we wrong? They say, with all these tragedies, how can there still be a moral case for the war in Iraq? Because Iraqis today, no matter how scared and how bitter, are, in some meaningful sense, free elsewhere. The outcome of that debate is in Arab hands, not American ones. This is in 2004. We've only been there for a year. Even in Iraq, although we must still assist as best we can, our control is slipping away. Ultimately, it is this new, bewildering, liberating debate, rather than U.S. force of arms, upon which our hopes for Iraq and the whole of the Arab world now rest. Americans no longer have the power to redeem this war, but Iraqis still can. Which, as hey, far I, as I'm concerned, is what Fred Fred. The Barnes most about. evil thing in all of it is just like their inability to ever grapple with the fact that, like... Uh, not just that that their like analysis was wrong, but their like their morality was wrong, right. and the way in which they distanced themselves from being active participants in any of this, and that, like this idea, they always talk about it like the war just sort of happened, yeah, and like and that if anything, like now that it's it's going so bad, it's actually kind of the Iraqis' fault, yes, and we did it for them, and it's still justifiable because technically they're freer now than they were, but if it goes wrong, you know, look, look. We fucked up because we trusted them. On October 31st, 2006, at 2.34 p.m., Andrew Sullivan had his conversion. <laughs> and, and He was is, smart enough to do it two weeks before the rest of the uh, elite ruling class. Uh, I, I just love, the same. I, yeah. I love this line. This, was, this is what I'm deciding was the moment. He opens a post. I have come to see that many, many liberals are indeed my brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> so that was his and afterward he would be uh, you know anti-war Tom Friedman check in with Tom August 4th 2006 it is now obvious that we are not midwifing democracy in Iraq we are babysitting a civil war so just again, again think, always just in the talking about Iraqis like they're fucking children yes. like all the people we're killing there are just like they're like, they're like yeah, we're a babysitter and the kids are acting up like it's fucking like Calvin and Hobbes right. you know here's David Brooks Many years later, 2015, in the New York Times, in a column called Learning from Mistakes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This one is really appalling, and, and I have to read the whole oh, intro. Okay. If you could go back to 1889 and strangle Adolf Hitler in his crib, would you do it? At one level, the answer is yeah. obvious. Hell yeah. Of course you should. If there had been no Hitler, presumably the Nazi party would have lacked the charismatic leader it needed to rise to power. Presumably, there would have been no World War II, no Holocaust, and no millions dead on the Eastern and Western fronts. But, on the other hand, if there were no World War II, I, can't be I cannot believe he's writing this. On the other hand, if there were no World War II, you wouldn't have had the infusion of women into the workforce. You wouldn't have had the GI Bill and the rapid expansion of higher education. You wouldn't have had the pacification of Europe. 
If there's no World War II, you don't need the pacification of Europe. Yeah, um, uh, there's a Pax Americana, which led to decades of peace and prosperity, or the end of the British and other empires. History is an infinitely complex web of causations. To erase mistakes from the past is to obliterate your world now. Literally the butterfly effect defense. That's what happened. <laughs> yes. He saw that movie. Yep. He saw that movie in his mid-2000s brain. David Brooks saw the butterfly effect and decided, I found a way to explain away my support for the Iraq War. Yes. It's Jesus just, Christ. All right, this is just my contribution to this. This is, uh, we're going back in time now to October 3rd, 2002. Game time. I think this, is, this is a good one to end with because like, he, he wish casts it into the future at the end. You no, know, this, this to me is like the... The per example of like Iraq war punditry by a guy who is more powerful and influential in our media now than he was in 2002. He's the editor in chief of The Atlantic. I, of course, occur to the porcine prison guard, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg. This is in, in, the, in Slate.com in the dialogues section from October 3rd, 2002. The title of this piece is Aflatoxin. David Plotz has offered a not unconvincing argument for Saddam's removal, but let me offer a better one, aflatoxin. And then he just goes on and on with a bunch of like... You had me at aflatoxin. Yeah, he just goes yeah. on He goes on to explain what aflatoxin is. Okay. It, does, it literally doesn't matter. He spends the first couple of paragraphs like showing how smart he is sure. by knowing what aflatoxin is. Yes. So he goes on to say, I do not want in this space to rehearse the arguments for invasion. Jacob Weisberg and Ann Applebaum have done a better job of that than I could. And they have also explained why multilateralism and congressional sanction are not the highest moral values known to man. There is not sufficient space as well for me to refute some of the arguments made in Slate over the past week against intervention. Sorry, arguments made, I have noticed, by people with limited experience in the Middle East. Their lack of experience causes them to reach the naive conclusion that an invasion of Iraq will cause America to be loathed in the Middle East rather than respected. I love that because Jeffrey is, of course, referring to his experience in the Middle East as a prison guard where, you know, according to him, if you... Uh, beat, humiliate, and degrade Arab Ben, they won't loathe you, but they'll fear and respect you. Yes. That is exactly what he was thinking in his head when he wrote this. Well, and he's also doing, like, he sits down and interviews Hamas. He interviews the Peshmerga militias in Kurdistan. He knows the real, he knows the real shit, man. I will try instead to return to the essential issues. The moral challenge posed by the deeds of the Iraqi regime and the particular dangers the regime poses to America and its allies. It's allies. Yep. Wink, wink. Everything else, to my mind, is commentary. So he goes on to the end here. Last paragraph. The administration is planning today to launch what many people would undoubtedly call a short-sighted and inexcusable act of aggression. In five years, however, I believe that the coming invasion of Iraq will be remembered as an act of profound morality. Jeffrey Goldberg, ladies and gentlemen. So that probably does it for a... Uh, I don't know how I feel at, at the end of this. I just feel dirty. Yeah. Hey, uh, well, th- thanks for, for playing in the mud with us. Yes. Like I said, it's, all this shit is just still with me. It's like it's never going to go away. I mean, I wish I could get this shit out of my brain or stop knowing or caring about these people. But they're all still here. Yep. They're all still here, except for a few minor exceptions. They're all still here. They're all still planning the next war. They're all fucking... You know, like, like David, some of them are resistance now. David Frum gets up every day and is like, mm, "Can I get a jog in before lunch?" Like, it's just, it, it, it's the, it doesn't. Yeah, I don't know what to say. Yeah, sorry, we bumped. I, I can visually see we've bummed you out on a uh, on a holiday. But so, thanks again to Will for coming on. Uh, we will see you next week. I'm Brendan James. I'm Noah Colwin. Later. <laughs>
Good afternoon. I'm David Remnick from The New Yorker, and we're welcome to a conversation with Seymour Hirsch. Thank you. What do you think is going to happen, and what do you think is not going to happen, or do you have no idea? It doesn't matter what I think. I mean, I don't know. It just doesn't. I mean, it matters what, what I can learn or what I know. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I think.